uh, Rob remembered my illustration of the two volcanoes, which <clears throat> we could see from uh, where we lived in cent central Java. Uh, uh, both uh, volcanoes uh, appeared to be alongside each other uh, from our house, uh, Marbabu and Marapi, if any of you know uh, central Java. But if you climb Merbabu, as I once did in my younger days, uh, when I was still you know, young, uh, <laughs> then you discover that the two volcanoes are not alongside each other, and one just behind the other, but there's another 70 miles to go before you get to uh, Merapi. That was the illustration, that, that's a, a summary of the illustration that Rob remembers, but I'd forgotten that I used but actually applies quite well to uh, our readings uh, from uh, Isaiah 65 and his vision of new creation and uh, how this is taken up uh, in John's uh, vision in Revelation uh, 21. I, I chose to preach this week on Revelation 21 and next week on Revelation 22 because at Dalkeith we've just been going through uh, the book of Revelation, and I preached the last sermon last week, so it seemed a natural thing to, uh, to uh, uh, speak on here. Um, well, uh, m most of us probably uh, avoid Revelation. Um, there's strange visions of seven-headed beasts and uh, the scarlet harlot and uh, apocalyptic horsemen, uh, usually cause us to put revelation in the too hard basket and uh, leave it to the experts. Although there is another group of Christians uh, who I suppose you'd say are futuristic gurus uh, who read revelation with great confidence in the light of their newspaper reports about events in the Middle East. Uh, someone gave me such a book uh, a couple of weeks ago. End Times and the Secret of the Mahdi. It's a commentary on Revelation. And the contents are not quite as lurid as the cover. But uh, it... Uh, talks about the, ri the rise of the Antichrist, ISIS, the state of Israel, uh, the movement towards one world government, which Brexit may have uh, undermined. <laughs> uh, but yes, reading Revelation in a way that would have been very strange to the original recipients. And that's the problem with most uh, such modern uh, interpretations. They would have had no meaning for John's original uh, readers. And in my own lifetime, the beast has been interpreted as the Pope, Hitler, Stalin, the World Council of Churches, the European community, that's a bit dubious now, as I've said, and others. And there was a very popular 
a Christian bestseller a few years ago, Hal Lindsay, The Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you may be old enough to remember, I don't know, about the 1980s, I can't remember, but uh, it was the top of the bestseller lists in the USA, of course, uh, and it claimed that uh, the locust plague, the locusts represent helicopter gunships, and the, 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 the horsemen are tanks, uh, and so on. Well, John's revelation uh, is a prophecy, as we see in uh, chapter 1, and again in the last chapter, but it is also a letter written at God's command to seven specific churches in Asia. And those churches are not in Beijing, Tokyo, Bangkok, Jakarta. To understand that, we have to, what did Asia mean in the New Testament? Well, of course, it's the Roman province of Asia Minor, which today we would say would roughly approximate to western Turkey and John is writing to these first century Christians struggling with heresy and persecution. Uh, The language which is to us uh, bizarre, uh, full of Old Testament symbols and expressions, was not apparently strange to John's readers. They were Jewish Christians who knew the prophecies of Daniel, the visions of Ezekiel and Zechariah in the Old Testament, and they were familiar also with a whole body of Jewish apocalyptic literature inspired by those prophecies. John's main constituency was Jewish. One of the most neglected texts, the most neglected verses in New Testament interpretation is Galatians 2.9 where Paul is very clear that Peter and James and John gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas that they would focus on the circumcision on the Jewish people and Paul and Barnabas would focus on the Gentiles. That doesn't mean say they never crossed the boundaries but that was their focus. And when you read the book of Revelation uh, as the gospel and also the letters, the most natural understanding is that they are addressed to Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians were a majority. It's very hard for us to think back to New Testament times pre-AD 70. Even the Acts of the Apostles, which describes the outreach of the gospel to the nations, the majority of conversions are Jews. Now, that has all changed. The mother church in Jerusalem is gone, and we're living in a different world. The Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in 1947, included quite a few apocalyptic writings, that is, writings in this uh, particular genre. A few months ago, I 
caught a plane to Sydney for the commissioning of Kanishka, who many of you would know, Kanishka Raphael as the Dean of Sydney. And I found that Qantas now supplies you with an iPad. I belong to a dinosaur generation, and I pressed a few buttons and thought I should... This was an opportunity to work out how an iPad... But it disturbed the lady next to me to such an extent that she felt she should explain to me how the iPad worked, and she showed me what films I could watch. I didn't really want to watch a film, but I felt I had to choose something. <laughs> so I chose, uh, I chose Harry Potter. Uh, I, I knew that Harry Potter was... Uh, uh, the, the Harry Potter books, my grandchildren seemed to uh, uh, like them. Uh, uh, but I, I personally had grown up with, with Biggles and uh, Treasure Island and uh, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens, and I, I found Harry Potter very different, uh, the, the whole magic and science fiction and so on, I found uh, very, very strange. It was a different, a, a, a genre, a kind of writing that was foreign to me. Well, the book of Revelation, of course, is in a different category from Harry Potter. Uh, John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he is still John. He is a Palestinian Jew who could express himself in the symbolic modes of expression common to his culture. So as we read Revelation, and in fact as we read any book of the Bible, we remind ourselves that it mean, its meaning comes from that time and that context. It assumes their background, not our background. It addresses their issues. This revelation from God comes through, through John to members of these seven churches, Asian churches. Its meaning does not come from the 21st century. But it is God's word. And God speaks to us through the biblical documents now, but only as we understand what he said to them then. Only when we have heard what God said to those Jewish Christians in their context can we apply what he is saying to us in our situation. Well, coming to chapter 21, which Yvonne read, uh, we've left behind the gruesome stuff. Uh, God's judgment has taken place. Uh, Satan, together with death and Hades, has been thrown into the lake of fire. We've come to the end of the end times. We're living in the end times. We have been living in the end times since the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. All Christians have been living in the end times. Now, in chapter 21, we come to the end of the end times, when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. So what does our final salvation look like? Well, we heard the words taken from Isaiah. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, bewildering images 
uh, a new creation, a city, Jerusalem, a bride. All Old Testament images are being mustered to describe the wonder of God's new creation here. Look, he heard the loud voice from the throne. God's dwelling place is now among his people. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the final vision given by the Lord Jesus to the Apostle John to encourage his persecuted Christian converts in that Roman province of Asia Minor. And the Holy Spirit has preserved the vision for us. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the existing fallen order disappears. God's curse on his world, recorded in Genesis 3, has been lifted. The renewal is total, as the prophets had foretold. It's almost impossible for us to imagine. And that is why so much Old Testament imagery is used to describe it. God has been preparing us for this. Down, God's revelation down through the centuries, through, through, through historical narratives, through, through ceremonies, through prophecies, through law, God has been preserving us, uh, 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 preparing us, I should say, for uh, this f final destiny that belongs to all those who believe in his son. Well, it's not a world we find easy to imagine. It's so different from the world we know the world reflected in our newspaper headlines this week, you know, financial crisis as a result of Brexit. Perth man convicted for prostituting his daughter. Thousands of Australians addicted to ice. Olympic Committee refuses to expel corrupt members. Pedophile ring is global. North Korean famine claims millions, jungles of Borneo face extinction, ISIS decimates Christians in Syria, black market in body parts. This is our world. It's God's world that we have spoiled. That's the world we know. We're immensely blessed in Australia to be sheltered from much of it. But this is the world in which we live, a, a world of pain and suffering, of greed and famine, of injustice and despair, of lawlessness and war, of pollution and death. And as the Apostle Paul says, the whole creation is groaning together, waiting to be set free from the bondage to corruption, Romans 8.20. But John says in his Gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the book of Revelation, with its sequence of graphic, uh, bewildering, frightening, beautiful visions, proclaims the triumph of the Lamb.
Jesus' death and resurrection brings individual forgiveness and restoration, but more than that, a renewed universe, a new Eden, but more even than that. Just as our resurrection bodies will be continuous with our present body, but transformed, as was the case with the body of Jesus, so the new creation will be real and physical, not vague, not ghostly, not formless, but solid and perfect. Most of us struggle as Christians to envisage our destiny. Yes, we know that Paul says in Philippians 1, it's better to depart and to be with Christ. We know that, but we, we kind of wonder really, will it be as good as it is here? We think of our destiny as something less real and enjoyable than what we now experience. So maybe we'll be some kind of a disembodied soul floating around in the ether, a very anemic kind of existence. But John's vision is appointing us to something far more wonderful than we have ever known. This new creation is also described as the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb. And one verse sums up the entire message of the Bible. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. That's used inclusively. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. Verse 3. And we realize the whole history of God's covenant with Abraham lies behind this verse. Every aspect of the hope of Israel, covenant, redemption, inheritance, temple, Davidic Messiah, New Eden, is woven into this one simple but profound statement, the dwelling of God is with men. This has always been the goal of God's plan of redemption, a direct, intimate fellowship with his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. In verses 11 to 21, we have a description of the construction of the holy city. It's ablaze with beauty. Every kind of jewel is, is used to convey some idea of the beauty, the purity, the majesty of God. And its construction represents perfection. It is a perfect cube, 1,500 miles, Perth to Adelaide. The 12 gates represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations, the Lord's apostles. In other words, he sees the unity of the people of God, of both the old and the new covenants, Something like we've already seen in chapter 7 where you have the 144,000, not Jehovah's Witnesses, 144,000 standing before the throne of God from every tribe of Israel. And then you have the great multitude out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This twin mission is going on throughout the New Testament. A mission to the Jews and the mission to the Gentiles. That is the work of the, of the servant for, foreshadowed in uh, Isaiah especially. Well, the big surprise for John 
and a shock for his Jewish readers would have been his statement, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. A temple has been so central in the hopes of Israel. And even today, a lot of the futurist gurus that I referred to are look, look, looking to see a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. I know it may happen. But in the new Jerusalem, there's no temple. No need for a building symbolizing God's presence anymore. He is there. He is in our midst. We fellowship with him. Nor is there any need for sacrifices because the lamb has shed his blood for us and there is no sin in that city. The city has no sunlight or moonlight. God's radiance is fully displayed and the city is bursting with life. For death has gone. The world's kings bring their, bring their splendor into the city and it contains the glory and honor of the nations. Those human works that have reflected faithfulness to God will come into the city. Whatever the humblest believer has done that honors God is never lost. That is why the Apostle Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, he says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In fact, as believers, we share Christ's rule over the new creation. So this is not some celestial retirement village where we try to avoid being bored by playing bridge or carpet bowls or mahjong, or maybe chess, I think. There might be chess. That there will be work for us to do. We shall at last fulfill the original mandate given to Adam and Eve to exercise dominion and stewardship over this new creation, this garden city that John describes. And this new Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, is a gift of God. It won't be a result of man's effort. It won't be a result of economic policies, jobs and growth, innovation, education. And that is what the Lord Jesus offers to you and me today, as we heard in the reading. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of eternal life. Amen.